Hello and welcome to Boutique Builders, a new series that gets under the skin of the fund managers who decided to go it alone. In this six-part series, Citywide Selector has interviewed a series of independent operators about the highs, lows, challenges and opportunities that come from launching your own venture. I'm Chris Surley, the editor of Citywide Selector, and along with my colleague Crystal Higgins, we have spoken to specialists, smaller players and a host of investment professionals to understand what it takes to offer something truly different in the world of asset management. Over the coming episodes, you will hear from a Citywire AAA-rated emerging market debt manager who wanted to unlock his entrepreneurial spirit, an Australian with an eye for innovation, and a fund manager spearheading a team that have become tired of institutional thinking, all of whom are seeking to answer one question, how do you build a successful boutique? This first episode features Matt Lamb of Pacific Asset Management. Having spent more than eight years at GAM in a host of senior sales roles, Matt was looking for a new challenge and in 2016 he was approached to develop the company and turn it into a genuine competitor to the industrialised asset managers dominating the market. In this discussion, Mac talks through the importance of fostering an inclusive culture, what keeps him awake at night, why the firm has launched the products it has, and what the genuine limits of growth are for a smaller player if it wants to retain its identity. So here we go with episode one. I guess the first thing to talk about is why we did it. One of the tough bits in very large organisations is that it's quite hard to get stuff done. You know, amount of conversations I have with people today where they were like, oh, you've done some really cool stuff. We wouldn't even know who to ask to get that stuff done. So there was this sort of vision that we had as a collective, which was, you know, keep it simple, giants can't jump, you know, how do I get things done quickly? And it's mostly common sense. We have this line, which is like, there's no premium for complexity. You know, most of the time, if you do things in a common sense fashion, it tends to work quite well for you and for clients and outcomes. You know, passive is a good example of, I guess, of that. And often, common sense takes courage, particularly in a big, you know, organization. So we kind of had a shared view, me, some ex-colleagues, that we wanted to build um, a home in a world of, you know, where asset management become very industrialized, you know, a home for what we thought was the very best craft investment talent. Um, and we wanted to be the very best, you know, home for them. We're not a platform, you know, we're, um, we're, uh, you know, we're a home and like, like children, you know, they all need different support and, you know, and that's what we wanted to be. So that's how it all started. And, and we were approached by Mr. Beckwith, uh, Sir John Beckwith's family office, Pacific Investments that had numerous, numerous success in the past. In fact, they won investors in Lion Trust and Thames River and River Mercator. Um, and he asked me, did I think it was possible? And I said, you know, if you can control the culture and you've got amazing technology and you've got plenty of conviction, maybe we can succeed. And that's how we started. And, um, you know, six years later, we're five and a quarter billion and it's moving in the right direction. One of the things that's come up in all these conversations, and you mentioned it there, is culture and the sort of the building and office environment, because you came from being in GAM and other places where there is more of an institutional feel, I imagine. But in terms of building up a culture and recruiting, how did you go about that? Did you know the type of people you wanted to attract as well? At the beginning, it was easy because it's a bunch of us that had a shared vision. Uh, it probably, um, in fact, we recently hired a guy called Chris Fiddick, who is one of the partners of Finley Park and, and runs an interesting concentrated US fund for us, 25 stop US fund for us. Um, and actually in his first note uh, that he wrote to clients, he wrote all about you know the stocks he was buying, but he finished it with saying that I can't underestimate how amazing the culture of Pacific Asset Management is. And that was a hugely proud moment for me personally. And so how do you control that? Um, you control that really by making sure that anyone you hire sees everyone within the business, which is a really straight, you know, labor intensive thing to do. 
but we want to make sure for two reasons. And typically the department that sees and interviews those people make a decision quite quickly, like in any interview process. And then that happens quite quickly. But then what we then do is try and get them to meet as many people as possible. And that's not an interview anymore. That is about, do you like us? Do we like you? Can you see what we're doing? It's about making sure they understand what we believe in, what we stand for. You know, we're a partnership. It's all owned by the people. You know, we don't think we should be listed. It's, and, you know, we want to align our views with our clients and, you know, the decisions that we're making. And we all care. There's a very flat structure. You know, we get involved. I speak to people that are graduates that have just joined and are picking their brains. And that requires hard work and it requires your ability to share ideas and not to be political and to, um, but it creates great culture. And if they love that and that's what they want, um, then, you know, we're excited to get people like that on board. But, you know, hiring is a big responsibility. I always feel very nervous. You know, I take someone out of an amazing job, an amazing big corporate, you know, I learned everything I knew by these big companies and that exposure to a multitude of different things is fascinating and you learn so much and you know, taking people out of that, you know, to, to, to sell them the dream of what we're doing is a big responsibility because I can't guarantee that dream's going to happen. You know, we're a smaller, we're smaller business. So we're constantly checking that we're actually living the story that we're telling. Well, I think that responsibility aspect, that touches on nicely. I think you're doing a better job at segueing into the next thing when I am. But in terms of the, the way that we talked about standing out and doing something different, if you're also, sorry, I'm jumping about slightly, but in terms of developing your company and the recruitment of the people that you bring in on board, you've also got to be conscious of how is the company running, not just how are the funds running. How do you find that split? So I imagine previous roles where you've been quite senior in sales positions, you're still focused on a sales team, not the entire organization. So how does that yeah. fit running the whole ship rather than segments of it? Yeah, I think that, that you know, when I, I think there was a sort of in, epiphany moment probably in my early 30s late 20s where you know i got this you know everyone sort of thought you know hey you know matt's a super sales guy this is great and i kind of thought so wait a second I, you know i don't want to be a super sales guy there are lots of super sales guys that's great but i don't want to be defined as that because you know i love and obsess about the detail and the industry and the difficulties and the challenges that the industry has and i love solving problems and how do i how do i solve the problem that is the sort of industrialization of the asset management industry and really should we just all you know i don't believe that any industry should be 100 percent industrialized in the same way that you don't just buy industrialized beer there was the renaissance and craft beers and there are in food and people want to know where things come from so for me i've always obsessed about the detail i've always obsessed about um you know understanding why people run money in the way that they do understanding what the differentiator between us and the peer group is trying to think about the winners of the next decade rather than the winners of the previous decade. So we didn't jump on, you know, launching technology funds. In fact, the first fund we launched was an emerging market value fund. And, and that was with the team at North of South and we took a stake in, in North of South. And that's been an amazing journey, you know, a billion and a half dollars later, amazing numbers. Um, but no one wanted emerging markets at the time and no one wanted value. I mean, they were two of the most unloved things in the world, but you kind of felt as an industry, you know, this is something that, you know, the people on a forward-looking basis, I don't think have completely given up on and are going to likely need some of that exposure and we could be a great home for that. And it doesn't work very well and passive. So 
I spend all of my time thinking about the business. I always have, even when I was at GAM and when I ran alternatives at Deutsche, it was all around the business, not just around distribution. And I think that's why we wanted to build what we built because we wanted to control the culture. I tell people like, if the get rich quick scheme is gone, and you know, I think for all the right reasons it has, um, can you still get rich slowly? Probably. But if you're going to get rich slowly, I want to get rich with people alike. And, and that's what that goes back to that culture point. Can I just jump in? Because one of the things is is about the sort of the biggest challenges as well. I mean, we're framed it in sense of if you have to do it again, what would you want to have known or done differently? There, if I've unpicked it, probably it's relevance is one aspect of things, fighting the industrialization. What would you put as the biggest challenge of running a company of your size? Um, well, I think that there are some very obvious challenges and that the barriers to entry for starting asset management businesses now are, are simply ginormous, you know, I spend my most nights not sleeping because I'm worrying about some sort of regulatory implications about what we're trying to do. Um, just as you think that you're getting some nice uh, margin expansion and operational leverage, you're putting more infrastructure in at, and rightly so and more compliance. And actually, weirdly, that, that the barrier to entry continue to increase, actually just put a bit of a moat around our business. So we get a lot of referrals from fund management teams from the sales side you know they may be the hedge fund managers through prime brokerage channels um and they're actually telling them not to go on their own because they're saying the barrier century just too high now and actually institutional investors want to make sure that you've got your blue chip you know service providers and your your, your a listed administrator and auditor and lawyers and all of that infrastructure and we spent so much money on uh infrastructure because we were unencumbered by legacy that we could end up building you know, I, I was a, you know, I did computer science for uh, a university and, and as A-levels and maths and, and I've always loved using technology to, you know, give, you know, I, you know, our operations team is full of technologists and we've got this idea that, you know, if you give bright people really boring things to do, they learn how to automate it. And so the, 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 the obvious challenges have always been just the cost of everything. Um, and, and that's, you know, why we sort of split the business in in two it's why we provide a lot of technology solutions for partner wealth management firms so we do we have three billion dollars in providing technology quasi technology solutions and white labeled solutions for wealth management channels and then we have our craft based you know single strategy hard to industrialize you know eat, you know hard to etfis um limited capacity high conviction strategies um so yeah so it def is definitely not easy and fees are obviously much lower than they've ever been, and rightly so. But if you can, if you can build fantastic infrastructure, people will want to join you. They will stay with you, and and you'll also maximise your operational leverage, which still, you know, is very much there in asset management. Um, but it's about providing value and to people, and you've got to do that at the right price. And to do that at the right price, you need great infrastructure. In terms of the best things about running a boutique, besides not sleeping, I guess the, the most positives on the other side, having that clean slate sounds like it was an exciting area to be able to innovate. Innovate? Innovate? Yeah. But in terms of the way that you see things, what do you think the best thing is? Um, so, so for me, you know, I've never really been motivated by sort of big financial gain. It's not been one of my life's motivators. One of the, the thing that I think is amazing is seeing the application of what we build, you know, in, 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 in industry, whether it's a, someone using our technology, whether it's a, a product in someone's portfolios. I mean, to me, I find it mind boggling that, 
you know, we run all this money for for people all over the world, U.S. state pension schemes, U.S. corporate pension schemes, insurance companies' balance sheets, wealth management, private banking assets. And, you know, you see a, a Pacific fund in a portfolio on somebody else's fact sheet, and that's the proudest thing ever. So that's the fun bit, working with people who are as obsessively detailed and wanting to solve problems as I am, and... um sort of showing that we could do it when everyone thought we were nuts. Um, so that's, that is, that's the bit I love the most. Um, creating a, a bit of a legacy, I guess, of, you know, you're only in this world once, so it's, it's quite nice to have sort of built something, you know. Plow drove yeah. something different. I think rode your own boat, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of just sort of going out a second, but in terms of the flagship strategies, I think we have covered that, but I'm interested just to understand how that might develop. So are you, are you able to talk about where you see yourself going, where the growth could be? If you were to add more strategies now, could we talk about why you went to merger market value and what you've added since and what could come next? Yeah, so there's a bit of, it was funny, uh, when Chris Fiddick joined us, who was, um, who, who I mentioned earlier, was from Finley Park, um, you know, obviously he had many offers and it was flattering that he joined us. But one of the things that he did mention is he said that um, one of his colleagues said there was no rhyme or reason by the collection of, of, of strategies that we had. Um, and that's sort of by design. My experience was that, that I mean, a bit of luck, but my experience was that um, fund managers that ran one product and only one product did really well. So this concept of trying to build a business within a business, let's have an equity franchise, a value franchise, a growth franchise. That was never really, I didn't feel that really sat well with what we were trying to do. You know, we felt that if somebody could run, um, you know, a couple of billion dollars in emerging market value, like emerging, like our team at, uh, at North of South, Matt Lindsay and Camille, and they could run that and they were capacity constrained and they can really build, build it. And that's all they focused their day and night on then they've got a pretty good chance of outperforming an index, which is pretty inefficient. And that is exactly what's happened. And when, if someone had said I'd ever launched a US fund, I would have said absolutely not. But when Chris walked in the door and you know some of his references said he knows more about companies in the UK than any other fund manager we've ever dealt with. And you can see just speaking to him, he's wired like that. And he said, I want to build a portfolio of 25 stocks. And my largest position, I want to be 10% and I want to be all cap and I probably only want to run a billion and a half. I was like, that's amazing. And he said, by the way, I'm probably not going to have much technology. I mean, that is a really big uh, call and very painful in the short term, I suspect. But, you know, if he wants to buy stocks that, that have a compound of an IRR of like 15% a year, you know, for Apple to do that over the next five years, it's got to double. That's a $6 trillion company. And, and that's the largest company in the S&P. And, and I think on a five-year view, you probably could do well by not owning that. And so, and then we, we built a fixed income RV rates team which was trading interest rate strategies. And that's something that's extremely hard to do in, in, in uses. In fact, one of the things you said was, you know, one of the things I often get asked is like, um, you know, if I'd known that beforehand, I would have never done it just because it involved, you know, seven figures of technology build. But once we had done it, you know, there are only two or three of us that do it in uses, which is really cool. And they've done fantastically well and they run 620 million. So what's next? Um, we, we like the social change angle. Um, as a, in, in ESG, and, and we took Danny from AXO, he ran the AXO family to a healthcare fund, and he's been really, it's a really interesting strategy there. I'd love to do small cap. Um, I, I, why? Because I think 
so if you go back to there's no prima for complexity, we go for the most simple answer possible. Um, that smaller companies, given their volatility, should have a higher equity risk premium for larger companies. You should get paid more over time for buying a smaller company. Otherwise, no one would ever buy them. You know, they're, they're riskier, they're more volatile, they're, of, they're often less predictable. And if you weren't going to get paid over the long time for doing that, then, you know, no one would ever buy them. And for a very long time, you haven't got paid for doing that because really you've got paid for holding seven or 10 US technology companies. And I think on a 10-year view, the winners of the next decade, that changes. And I think that governments and regulators and other things have, have recognized that you're really struggling to get the research coverage. You're really struggling to get, um, you know, demand for for smaller companies. And if you're a smaller mid-cap company and you floated and you're a six times earnings, I mean, like, why would you ever float? People ask me the questions like, how far can you can you look ahead with predictability or Pacific? You know, I, I've got a pretty good idea where we'll be in five years time. You know, where we'll be in 15 years time, I haven't got a clue, yeah? So if someone's gonna say you can float and you get 15 times, that's quite an interesting trade. If someone's gonna say, I'm gonna float and you get five times, that's a less interesting trade because I've got a pretty good guess within a deviation of X or Y where I'm gonna be in five years time. So I think that has to change. And I think there'll be regulatory reform and I think there'll be a, a real demand. And as we come out um, of this uncertainty of where rates are going and whether we go into a recession or not, there'll be huge opportunities within that space. So I'm very excited about that and we're looking actively about that. 